this is Catherine O'Connell and welcome to Lawyer On Air. If you are looking for inspirational stories about women in law, then this is the podcast for you. Join me and my lawyer ladies as we enjoy a glass of wine after a hard day at work and talk about the world of women in law. It's my passion to share stories of amazing legal ladies who are working as in-house legal counsel, who have law firm roles, who are leading on boards and who are doing law differently. From time to time, I will also invite special guests on the show to share their insights on legal recruiting and tips for getting hired as a successful lawyer in Japan. I hope you will enjoy getting to know these amazing women who I am so proud to share a profession with. I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Lawyer On Air podcast. In this episode, I share with you another diverse story of a woman lawyer working in Japan. I'm Catherine, the host of the show, and I'm a lawyer based in Tokyo for 20 years, and I love helping unlock the wisdom of the stories that women lawyers never tell. What I've learned so far in my law career is know your goal and plan for it. You may not always know your goal, you have to find it and then plan your career around it. Well, those are the words of my guest today, Akiko Kikuchi. Akiko is the General Counsel, Head of Law, Patents and Compliance, and the Senior Operating Officer for Bayer, a global life science company in Japan. Her legal team are award-winning and so is Akiko herself. And she talks a little bit about award strategy in this podcast. Akiko has worked in the legal industry for over two decades, previously serving in both private practice and in-house legal counsel roles. She is Japanese born and she lived in Yokohama for many years, but spent her formative years aged three to eight in London due to her father's job. And it's through this experience that England has very much become her second home. You can find out Akiko's full bio in the show notes. On this episode, Akiko shares how she has found law firm experience to be invaluable, but enjoys being an in-house lawyer more due to the amount of exposure she can get to the business and the fact that she is able to see how her legal advice impacts the organization. She also shares her view that as general counsel, you get the opportunity to be involved in forming important strategic decisions for the company, which is a particularly exciting part of the job. And you can do this while building and growing a professional team to support the entire business operations. And that this has been really both challenging and rewarding for her. Akiko also shares her tips on being a great general counsel, as well as excellent tips for young lawyers and women lawyers, such as building your own internal and external networks. You'll also get Akiko's top recommendations on how to overcome a big challenge in your career when you find yourself in the war room of a very big matter and that you really need the help from others to carry your way through. And Akiko finally shares some of her favorite places to visit, her two favorite sayings, as well as a fun fact that you may not know about her. Let's get into it. Hello, Akiko, and welcome to the show. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a while. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. I'm super excited to have you here. Oh, finally, I've arrived, and <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to this chat. We did plan to have a discussion a while ago, and for various reasons, it didn't transpire, but really excited to be here today. Thank you. Well, if we were meeting up in person, Akiko, where would we be? Do you have a, a favorite wine bar or restaurant or cafe that you love to go to? And what would be your choice of beverage off the menu? I do have so many places I can think of. And uh, as you know, I've moved out of Tokyo a couple of years ago, and I'm exploring different different cities now. And there is this place in Yokohama called Smoke Door. It is at Not Hotel, not spelt uh, K-N-O-T. It's really interesting because this chef called Tyler Burgess, he's a pitmaster from San Francisco. He uses wood fire cooking and they have lovely cocktails there as well. I had lime and cucumber gin tonic. I know you're a champagne lover, so you may not go for that, but they are <laughs> 
rhubarb and vanilla martinis, lavender and chili pepper, Manhattans, botanical margaritas, you know, all of them, the, the cocktails are so interesting. Lavender and chili pepper martini? Yes. Ooh, Ooh that's I... a Manhattan. Yes. Oh, Manhattan. Yes. Ooh, okay. I might have that one though. That sounds really intriguing. Um, I quite like those ones with a little bit of spice, but with a floral aspect as well. Wow. How exciting. Yes, this is definitely a go-to place. You know. I didn't know about that. So not hotel with a K-N-O-T. K-N-O-T, that's right. It's not so far from Yokohama Station. Oh, lovely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, let's get into your career background and current role. Well, I like to normally ask a little bit further back into your childhood first up and maybe your younger adult years, what kinds of careers you might have been thinking about or what sort of things you were just dreaming up about maybe what you wanted to do or what you wanted to experience in the future? Yes, if I go back quite a few years, I'm thinking um, the first time I thought, well, I want to be a dot, dot, dot. I think it would have been maybe ballerina or gymnast, possibly painter or fashion designer. I was really into those kind of um basically nothing to do with law. Uh, law really came into my life a lot later. So yeah, I wanted to be one of those things more related to art or, or fashion or possibly, you know, something else artistic. Right. Do you know what influenced you there? Did you see that around you? Were there some TV programs or what was it? I wonder what it was, but I, I think I always liked drawing and my parents used to praise me that I was a really good drawer. And I had a, a little cousin um, who loved my drawings too. So I started to draw these uh, models wearing different kind of dresses and I would paint them in different colors. And my cousin always uh, requested to have so many different kinds. So I used to paint pages and pages of them and give them to her. And maybe that's why I thought, oh, maybe this is what I want to do. Oh my goodness, it sounds really like fun. I remember, you know, now Barbie, the movie's out, isn't it? And so everyone's <laughs> looking at back at Barbie's fashions again. So as you were speaking there, it made me think of that, the sort of models and the different kinds of clothing and um, artwork that you can do, which is really fun when you're a child to have that kind of curiosity and having that artistic exploration. It's great. And that is, as you say, quite different to being a lawyer. Yes. So when did that come up for you then? You said it was quite a bit later. So tell us about that. And did somebody perhaps guide you or influence you along the way to start thinking about law? Yes, that's a um, very good question. I didn't really have family members or relatives right around me who uh, were lawyers. And I think that I chose the subject of law because I thought that this is the most useful subject to study. And, uh, you know, in, in our days when we were students in high school and we were trying to choose which subject to study at university, we used to use this term, tsubushi ga kiku, which means um, if you study that, it could be useful for, for anything. So there's no loss. So might as well. And so it wasn't necessarily like a deep interest in, in law or the profession that drove me there, but it was really, it seemed to me to be the most sensible topic to, to study at the time. Even if I wanted to go into business in the future, it would always be something very useful. So that's how I chose the subject. Right. So you kept quite gen general with your study rather than going into something very specific so you could keep your options open. That's right. So, you know, I spent my early years from age three to eight in England and when I came back from England, I went through the Japanese educational system. And for a very long period of time, I didn't really speak English that much either, because it's quite different today. I, my son is 14 years old, and he's allowed to be different. And it's good that he speaks English and Japanese. But in those days, children who came back from abroad, I think that we were not necessarily allowed to be very free and and open diversity in those days was not really like it is today so i suppressed myself for a long time and i tried to be very very japanese and i just wanted to go through the normal japanese educational route and go into university but what i realized is that if i studied law and maybe in the future that would also allow me to go to england again in the future and 
that would give me, you know, just something else to add to my profession. I could qualify perhaps abroad. I had this very vague feeling in my head that perhaps getting a, a qualification abroad in law might be a good thing. Right. And you did that. I did do that. Yes, I did do that. After finishing university, I actually first got a job with a Japanese bank. And these were the days when Sogoshoku was was big. You know, a lot of Japanese banks or Japanese corporations were accepting Japanese women to work in the same capacity as Japanese men for the first time. Right now, that is, again, very normal. But in those days, it was a really big deal. And I got a job and um, I even had uniform made, but I realized, actually, this is not what I want to do. I must go abroad. I must get that qualification I was thinking about. But my father at the time uh, had this very strict policy that if you want to spend money on education or yourself uh, after graduating from university, you must kind of do that on your own. He was not going to financially support me. So I had to find a way to achieve this on my own. And I had to look for a scholarship that enabled me to do that. And I also applied for Oxford. These were two different things. I had to get into Oxford and I also had to get the scholarship. And I was super lucky. Both of them coincided. So I was able to go and, and study being sponsored. And uh, later on, I also um, went to College of Law in London and had my training and got qualified uh, as a solicitor. Right, I see. That's quite a long trip to get there, but also just taking you back to that sogo shoku that Japan would even have a name for men and women <laughs> doing the same job just really makes me stop and think how far we've come. But absolutely, when you left there to go and say, I want to go and do study, how did that come across with everybody? Because it must have been quite oh, hard. Well, I had actually hadn't joined the bank. We were given this thing called Naite. So, uh, you know, you're um, informally given the offer to join. And once that was given, we uh, spent a lot of time together, people in the same year to get to know each other, even before joining the bank. And it was really during that time that my uniform got made and I got to know <laughs> other people and we had lots of dinners together. Those were the days also when people were getting taken on trips to go to Hawaii or whatever, make, making sure that they couldn't be contacted by other companies um, so that they Is wouldn't that change right? their mind. That's what yes. part of that trip to Hawaii was about. That they would <laughs> right. keep you away from really? Wow. That's so you, you wouldn't believe this, but when no. I received this uh, informal offer from this bank, I was actually being followed by another female um, senpai in the bank. She would follow me to the bathroom to make sure I wasn't oh. really making calls to another company. It was those wow. days when, you know, we were very popular as graduates to get uh, good jobs with uh, large corporations. Right. You were precious gems and they didn't want you being taken by anybody else. Right. Especially since That's they right. want to prove the sogo shoku, the equal opportunities work for men and women. And so you got that uh, unofficial informal letter, but you said, you must have said no. Yes. And I was ready to have uh, something thrown at me, maybe eggs or whatever. <laughs> um, they had already made my uniform. And uh, oh, and again, you know, interesting, but only women had uniforms made. Of course, men didn't have to wear uniforms. I, I think oh, for women, really? it was a time when, yes, we were still supposed to be getting some training at the front desk. Um, you know, those were the days when women wow. still had to do a lot of serving tea and making copies, but really being as as hardworking as the other men who were doing the harder work. So yes, it, it, it was interesting. So anyway, I, I did have all of that made and I felt terrible about that, but uh, I thought this is still early enough. I must change the course of my life and, and get back to what I really wanted to do. And, you know, during that period, I was, the Oxford thing was coming through, the Jardine Matheson scholarship was coming through. So I, I just quickly changed course and I said, thank you, um, but but no, thank you. <laughs> wow, big stuff right at the beginning. And also just to do that. And your dad had said to you, look, you're on your own. I'm not going to financially support you here. So you really had to be very driven to take I, I had to be paths. very driven. Yeah. And 
I actually get along really well with my father, so I don't want to give you the No, it sounds like he's he was, someone who's just putting you on the right path. It, 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 exactly. He had a very strict policy like that. Yeah. And I, I wasn't really rebelling either. I, I, I just knew what he meant. And this was something that I had to explore and achieve on my own. And uh, if if not, then it was one of those things. Maybe I would work in a bank first and then save enough money and then go. So it was really up to me. Mm. And, you know, my father was the reason why I also spent my formative years, my early childhood in England from age three to eight. And he um, is somebody who's traveled to 114 countries in the world, wow. including North Korea. So Goodness. he's he's extremely uh, well-traveled and, and very knowledgeable about what goes on in the world. And I think, you know, for various reasons he decided well you know it's one of those things that you have to do on your own so good luck you know and uh <laughs> and look so that was tough did. love <laughs> yeah look what it's tough love but look what happened and you got both of those that you set out to do and right. came through and got your law degrees and did you i think from reading your background you didn't stay in the in the UK though you you went and took up your first role outside of England yes after finishing at College of Law, I, I went to join Goulden's, which is now part of the Jones Day group. So that's where I got trained as a solicitor. And uh, upon qualification, I moved to Simmons and & Simmons. And this was in 1997, the year of the Hong Kong handover to China. Nice. Nice. So a lot of people like myself with APAC background were encouraged to go to Hong Kong to get double qualification because that was really the last opportunity to do so and that's how I ended up going to Simmons Hong Kong office. I see so you worked in Hong Kong but also did you go back to London for a point as well? Yes I did I did I did also spend another year in London um, Simmons and Simmons London before then moving on to Japan. There was a period of time when I was kind of going around um, in either circles or triangles between Hong Kong, London and Tokyo. Right. How was it in those first few years then as a private practice lawyer after all this time you've spent, right, investing in yourself and you got there, how was yeah. it? Well, you know, when I look back at my career, I, I, I still think that those were among the toughest times, really learning a, a lot as a, as a young lawyer, doing big deals, but not really having the full visibility of the entire deal, mm. just doing a part of it. Um, that was certainly the case, particularly in London, when we were doing huge M&As or JVs. And as a young lawyer, you would only be involved in part of the deal. And the hours were always very hard uh, being in the corporate legal department. But, you know, I think that's also where I gained my discipline and my work ethics. And um, I have some team members now at Bayer, who also were trained first at these um, top law firms before coming in-house. And they also have similarly very strong work ethics and uh, are extremely diligent. And I do therefore look back at my career and think, yeah, it, it was still worthwhile. It was really, you know, something that I had to go through and I'm glad that I, that I did. Yeah, I think I'm sort of in, in with you in the same way of thinking that those hard yards that we do at the very start, it does feel like, what am I doing this for? This doesn't feel like what I signed up for, but actually it's all part of being a lawyer and growing into the roles. And as you just said, absolutely gaining the discipline and the work right. ethics that you need um, yep. to sustain you throughout any kind of law career that you have. Can you think of any like highs and lows that you had at the time? I mean, obviously, I'm thinking, obviously, the hours were quite hard, but there's some highlights you had during those first few years. I think that when I was in Hong Kong, I was able to bring in quite a few Japanese clients as a young lawyer. And this wasn't necessarily happening to other lawyers of my seniority. And I think that was really because the Japanese community in Hong Kong really needed uh, lawyers who could speak both Japanese and English and understood the Japanese business and could really relate to the client. So I was I was really lucky that I was um, able to build these relationships and also bring in clients for the for the firm. So that was very, very satisfying and uh, 
that also made me think, oh, maybe this is the reason why I decided to become a lawyer because I wanted to use the knowledge of law and my language skills, but not just in one region or one country. I wanted to work as a go-between between Japan and foreign countries. And I was achieving that in one way or another, and that was extremely satisfying. Absolutely. I have to ask you, did the bank ever become a client? <laughs> Not that I can recall. No, no. But I still use the bank, you know, for private right. um, uh, banking. So um, I would say the relationship is is good. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had to ask that one. Okay, so... From there, you're now in-house though. So something's happened along the way there that you have moved away from private practice roles because I know you came back to Japan as well. So tell me about that, moving out of private practice into in-house and what led you to do that? Because that's a big jump. And I know a lot of our guests have talked about this, but I want to hear from you, Akiko, because I haven't heard this story, why you went in-house. Yeah, so when I was with Simmons and Simmons Hong Kong, I had uh, the chance to go on secondment to GE, General Electric, and their plastics division um, needed a lawyer to come on secondment. And that's when I realized that there was a whole different world out there where lawyers could be useful. And this is really the first time where I saw end to end, you know, the strategy being formed and the lawyers being part of that formation and uh, seeing the negotiation or being part of it and then seeing the end result of it. And that was something that was really an eye opener for me and made me realize, oh, this is actually maybe the kind of law I really wanted to get involved in or wanted to practice. And I was fortunate enough to also get an offer from GE to move there. And so I jumped ship completely and went in-house. Interestingly, though, I was still rather junior. So that's the year when I decided I need to get a bit more corporate experience under my belt before feeling really comfortable. So that's the year when I went back to London to do a, a full year of corporate work again. But after that, I came back to Japan. I was with Squire Sanders, um, now Patton Box, but uh, Squire Sanders at the time. And at that firm, I was able to do a lot of different, smaller transactions that I think, again, really prepared me to go in-house. So it was always with an intent to, at a later point in time, go go in-house. And that's what I was able to do. And I was able to plan for it. So that's how it worked out. I see. I see. So I know when I started my first in-house role, I didn't see the end-to-end. I saw Mm. parts of that transaction as well. It was only really when I got to like head of legal that I could see the whole transaction. So Ah. (laughs) perhaps it it depends on the firm that you join, but it sounds like with GE, perhaps you had the opportunity from beginning to end to be in the whole project. Is that right? That's right, because I was pretty much the only lawyer so there was no one else to rely on. And uh, it was just me and a uh, legal assistant, but it was just too much work. So I also had to ask um, a lawyer to come on to comment from a law firm. And that's how I got in- involved in it. But then I also realized, you know, this, this is great to be involved in in everything, but maybe this is a little bit too much. I thought that going in-house was also supposed to allow you to have a better work-life balance. That wasn't quite happening to me. So um, that was an interesting learning experience. Mm. And from those days, what's been your journey now? Because you're at Bayer and you've got this amazing role uh, with several titles, GC. So you're general counsel, you're head of law, patents and compliance, and you're also the senior operating officer. How does someone go from where you were to where you are now? What have you been able to do to get to that position? So it's it's been a bit of a journey. I think I would say when I was working at GE, I was pretty much doing the, the legal work myself. Uh, I was given the general counsel uh, title at a very young age, but I still had to do a, a lot of work. I, I really did not have time to strategize, neither did I really have a team. Now, that was a very good learning experience for me, as I mentioned, but then that enabled me to um, later on move to uh a different role after, again, a few years of of going back to private practice and, and preparing myself again. But the next 
in-house role that I had after GE was with Bearing Point, which is a consulting firm. Later, this got purchased by PwC. But there, I managed a, a team for the first time and realized how fulfilling that really is. When you're doing work and your team members are doing work, but together, you're achieving so much more than each individual working on their own deal. That was something that I didn't really realize I would really enjoy. At the beginning, I was still making mistakes because I, I think I didn't know how to manage a team. So I was dividing up all the work amongst all of us, including myself, and I was still doing a lot of the detailed work. And uh, I thought that that was the best way to show that I was also contributing. Um, in the end, it was good perhaps to have started that way because then I understood how the deals or all, all the contractual terms and how the small deals are also done. But then um, again, it didn't really give me any time to strategize or, or manage the team. So I moved on to realize that if you're managing a team, you're in charge of people's careers, you have to really approach your work differently. And when I moved to PwC, or rather when Bearing Point was purchased by PwC, the team got bigger and bigger. And I was given more of a chance to, to get involved in managing the team and strategizing and being part of the global legal team and bringing the, the knowledge back to the local team. And it was really only after that that the Bayer opportunity came and they were certainly looking for Number one, a female, which was very lucky for me. But number two, somebody who could manage their existing team. It was, I think, a team of 10 at the time. And uh, they really needed somebody who could manage a team who, would, who was based in two different cities and an experienced manager. So that's how the opportunity just really fell into my lap. Right. Well, I don't think it fell into your lap. I think you worked for it. <laughs> Um, don't be so modest, but you know, you've got this role now and you've been with them for how long? Well, I've been with them for nine years yes. and at the end of this year will be my 10th year. There you go. We must go and have a celebration for that. That's amazing. <laughs> I remember when you first joined, so 10 years, that's incredible. And it must be very exciting because you've been building them, this team and growing them as well. So how do you then manage your calendar and your time and those other oversights that you need to do with your staff and the people in your teams? And I guess, too, those requests that come in from all the other different departments. Any good tips for those sorts of things that come up, managing your calendar, looking after your team and requests from other departments? Well, yes, this is something that I would I would love to ask other GCs because I'm still learning. And I, I can't say that I have really figured out the best way. First of all, I have a really good assistant who manages my calendar for me. So I'm really lucky. But, you know, when I first arrived at Bayer, the Global General Counsel uh, told me that you always need to block your time and have some time to strategize and to really think. And um, when I arrived at Bayer, we used to have lots and lots of meetings. And every single day I would have back-to-back -back meetings, maybe nine a day was average. We are now trying to really reduce those meetings and making them shorter and more efficient. But um, I realized that I really didn't have the time to think. And so that was something that I learned rather early on. And so blocking my time, again, no rocket science here, but blocking my time to think and strategize and also over the years, I realized that it's still not possible to quite prepare for meetings that take place on the day. So even though you think, oh, there's a, a blank spot here, so I can use that time to prepare, I think so many things come flying across your desk that make it impossible. So it is always important to, first of all, set aside 20 minutes of my time, usually on a Friday, to organize my calendar and prepare for the following week and put in some slots in front of the pre-planned meetings so that I can block myself enough time to prepare for those meetings. If it's an important one-hour meeting, the day before I would block another one hour to prepare for that meeting if wow. my calendar allows. But I try right. and 
do that and also add items to my calendar ASAP before someone else starts adding. So even if I cannot copy paste the whole full details, like dial-in number, whatever, I block it so that uh, th that time is kept for me to prepare for other meetings or to strategize. So that's what I do. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. And as you said, it's not rocket science, but we often don't do it. And we are the ones who are in charge of our calendar. So if someone books something, it's really, oh, that person booked something. It's not about that, is it? It's really about ourselves controlling our calendar. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have no meeting Fridays, Oh, okay. Uh, which has made this really easier for me. This is something that first started at a global level. Not all countries really implement it strictly but I uh, to to my team I've said well let's really use this opportunity uh, within LPC you know this is something that's quite recognized so we try and really not plan any meetings that we are in control of on Fridays so Fridays are the days that gives me time to reflect and also plan for the following week that is so good no meeting Fridays they're sacred right and everyone yeah. knows that within the company so that just makes so much sense at least within the legal department very right. well known uh, right. more with the business some business teams we might go ahead and mention but if it's you know something of of a priority we would still give the business the priority that's needed and this is also understood in the in the team but wherever we're in control of planning a a meeting we would not plan this on a on a friday right well a career as a gc is not always smooth and sometimes it comes with a few twists and turns and bumps on the road and i guess there might have been some career challenges along the way akiko are there yeah. any things that you'd like to share and maybe some stuff you've learned from that that could be quite helpful for others to hear you say so i think building a, a strong team is definitely both challenging and rewarding when you inherit a, a team it is really up to you to then you know, continue to change the team and really bring up the level and uh, raise the bar and make it a high-performing team. But this is not something that could be done overnight. It really requires a, a lot of time and energy. In my job, I think uh, learning the strengths and weaknesses of each team member is very important because, you know, one team member might really be passionate about doing M&A, but for another team member, that's just nothing but stress. And she or he might prefer to be involved in daily contractual work. And so really realizing people's preferences, plus the strengths and weaknesses of each team member is really important because then I can allocate them in the right roles and slowly start building a, a very strong team. So I think the team building when it starts really showing results, it is the most rewarding thing. And uh, this year we were really blessed with two awards from ALB. And uh, I had already decided up front that I'm not going for any individual awards. It's really all about the team. And what we wrote in the application was was really very um, simple. It was really the daily work that the team was already doing. And we put some of the description, you know, in a way that the judges might pay attention to. Some of them we highlighted more than others, but it's really the the work that the team is now doing on a, on a daily basis with everyone really, you know, um, showing their strengths. And I, I think that's really been one of the most rewarding things of my career to, to see a team being developed. Now, alongside this, I would say that one of the other challenges I've had in my career as, as a GC is when things come flying your way and you're not really prepared for it. And we had a whistleblower case that was quite public and uh, it took us an, a number of years to to really uh, settle. This was hard physically and also mentally. We were in a war room for a, a few months and uh, I had no break. My husband, who uh, is also a lawyer, he was very worried for me. But what I realized through that is, is that when you're in crisis mode, get the help that you need. We did get help from all the experts that uh, we needed to reach out to. And we strategized and we dealt with the matter in the most appropriate way possible. And there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, at the beginning, we didn't feel that way, but there was essentially. And we still managed to get through. But 
life as a GC sometimes is very stressful because these things just crop up without any notice and you suddenly have to inject yourself in a situation where you know you might have very little control over. But then you have to quickly, again, plan and adjust and uh, form a crisis team to deal with it. So that was a challenging experience, but I felt, again, it made me stronger as a GC. And uh, for that reason, I look back and, and think that was just an amazing experience I went through. Mm, and I think you've got the point there is that you have to build this team to help you through the crisis and get the help, you know, the other help that you need externally. But at the same time, you mentioned just before about how you have inherited this team and you've been building them up, developing their uh, strengths and weaknesses and having them do other work as well. So while you're on the crisis team, you've got to have that other team there continuing to support the business and do the daily activities, right? That's right. And I think for quite a, a few months, uh, my team members didn't really see me that much during that period because I was dealing uh, with this with the other crisis uh, management team members. But as you say, business goes on, other work needs to be done. And I was very fortunate because the other uh, team members who were handling the other work, they were extremely professional and they could um, continue dealing with it without me being there. Right, I see. And now you're looking back on it as, you know, it was something that was actually rewarding because it made you stronger. Right. What does, what does that mean? What's stronger if you're a GC? Is it stronger emotionally or able to cope with this if it comes up again? Well, if possible, I would choose not to go through that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, having gone through it, I think that uh, I am stronger as a person. And I realized that even though, you know, when you're right in the middle of it, you think this is the end of the world and there's nothing you can do that is completely wrong. So it, you know, makes you realize that there's always a way to deal with an issue. Mm -hmm. And um, for that, there are various things that you have to do, know the experts, you know, know what to do when a crisis hits you, putting a team together, acting quickly, having media training, et cetera, et cetera. That it made me think that there's always a way to deal with an issue. And so it made me stronger as, as a lawyer. And so when things come flying across that I don't know how to deal with right now, I think I will in a way still be prepared because mentally I will be prepared. Right. It's very deep end. And it's like, well, if I ever get thrown in the deep end of the pool, I know I've been there before, but probably it won't happen so much. But if it does, I'm prepared. Otherwise, everything else is quite smooth sailing at the other end of the pool. Right. right. Each feet can touch the ground. Yeah. Right. But you mentioned in there about your husband also being a, a lawyer. How right. has that been to have somebody who is sort of understanding your career and you his that must be quite interesting yes so it, it's actually really great we met at uh squire sanders and i first moved in-house and he was a partner at jones day an m a partner at jones day and he saw the kind of work i was getting involved in and he started getting interested in in-house work and the first in-house job that he got was with ibm now he's a, a general counsel and we, we both have these senior in-house roles. Our businesses are very different in style. I used to be in consulting, so I know how fast moving my husband's business is. And it's really quarter to quarter. And he, he's on call from early in the morning, late at night. It's really quite challenging on him physically, um, although I know he really enjoys it. My business is more, you know, mid to long term. We have a different rhythm and we focus on different things, but it's always great to be able to kind of have a, a sparring partner on certain issues, especially about, you know, team building and, and things like that. And to be able to really support each other, I would say that he's probably my biggest supporter and vice versa. Of course, you know, as lawyers, sometimes we don't agree on all topics and we might get into, you know, a lawyer-like <laughs> argument um, <laughs> and disagree uh, on certain things. But I would say in, in general, you know, we're really supportive of each other's career and that is just so great. Wow, that's really cool. I, I know who you're talking about, of course, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's always amazing that 
he saw what you were doing and was inspired to sort of become also uh, working in-house rather than private practice. I always think, I remember the day when he, he sort of moved off uh, from right. private practice, which was quite revolutionary. But now I think of him as nothing but uh, the general counsel that he is. And he's been right. extremely, like you, good and won many awards um, as well. And I, before I go into, well, I, I'll ask you now though. So you talked a little bit about awards. And I know you mentioned just before you were going to write, you wrote something that the judges would pay attention to. What is the key then to writing a successful award submission? What does that mean when a judge would pay attention to it? I actually don't know, but my <laughs> my uh, guess is that it really needs to be something value add that we deliver. So, you know, doing great deals, doing you know legal work, compliance work, et cetera, is, is of course very important, but then what else are we delivering? And one of the things that my team is, has been focused on in the past few years is innovation. And we developed our own app, uh, which is a means for which we would deliver compliance training. It's called Complasan. You have your own avatar, that uh, can climb up these steps every single time you do a quiz and you you get it correct. You can climb up three steps. You keep on climbing, 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 and then eventually you reach the shrine at the top and you get your black belt. And uh, your avatar could be wearing a karate wear or could be wearing a suit or hiking wear. It, it's just fun. Yeah, sounds fun. This is a, a really cool award-winning app that we, we treasure. But we have used that in many ways. And also last year, the team was really very innovative in the sense that they used metaverse space in order to give a ceremony for those award winners who were involved in this Complacent competition. And it was really the first event that was held in metaverse space in Bayer, Japan. So the law patents and compliance team was the first to test this technology. The team, to be honest, spent a lot of time preparing for it. They were helped by uh, other team members, event management, and uh, IT, of course. But you know, it was it was really successful, and the the members who attended all loved playing with their uh, avatars. And I think it's those kind of things that people want to hear about. What else are you doing, and what value are you adding to you know your services or or to what your company does? Absolutely. And what fun you've made it. I've never heard of anything like it. And I, I really think that's amazing. For anyone who's listening here, they might think, oh, how can we do an app and award ceremony in the metaverse? That is just absolutely stunning. I think that's really cool. And obviously, that's why you won the Innovative In-House Team of the Year this year in 2023. But your team also won the Pharmaceutical and Healthcare In-House Team of the Year as well, right? Right, right. Wow. Exactly. They just do great work, and I'm really proud to be working with them. It's it's just such a great team. That's cool. And I think a couple of years ago, or maybe it was three years ago, your team also won Compliance and Risk Management in-house team of the year. Right. And the right. same so year you won, and I'm going to give it to you, <laughs> you also won uh, in-house Women Lawyer of the Year. Yes, thank you. No, that was um that, that was really wonderful. It was during COVID, so we yes. needed something to cheer ourselves up with. So <laughs> I remember that there was no ceremony held in person and, and everything yes. was online. But I would look back and think still that the team award was definitely the best. I mean, I, I was very happy to receive the female uh, in-house lawyer of the year award. But more than that, it's really the team award. And more and more, you know, when I continue my job, I just realize that you're only as good as your team. And if you have a large team in, in particular, that's even more the case. So when your team does well, it also makes you look good. But, you know, it's, it's really, for me, all about the team. Oh, wonderful. You're so good. I hope they listen to this and uh, have big smiles on their face as well. Well, I've got two big questions for you. And one is a sentence that I'd like you to finish for me that I've been asking most recent guests in season six. And that is the most important thing I have learned from my career in law so far is. I would say know your goal and plan for it. Now, this may not be always easy because you may not know 
what is your goal, but I think you need to find out what your goal is. And I think my journey has certainly been one of those. I didn't know that I wanted to be in-house. I didn't know that I wanted to be a team leader until I tried a, a couple of things. But once you know your goal, just plan for it, plan your career in that way. And this is not something that somebody will do for you, you know, hand to you. It's, it's really something only you can do for yourself. So try and find out what makes you passionate, I think is is the most important thing. Wow, really great. And then this is probably similar, but and related. Somebody listening to you today probably thinks, oh, I love what Akiko is doing. And I'd really love to have her role in the future. What kind of advice might you give someone, Akiko, who is thinking about the kind of job that you are doing? What steps do you think they could take, things they should concentrate on as they move forward to try and be you, as it were? Well, I, I really benefited from uh, working at a law firm before moving in-house. Of course, you know there are some brilliant in-house lawyers who never worked at a law firm. But for me, I always think that getting a lot of training on the technical front at a law firm is is a good thing. And again, work ethics, diligence, you learn all those things. I think if you want to become a team leader, a GC who gets involved in strategic discussions with management teams, you really need to have those skills as a foundation. But I, I think you need to continue building. Again, this is kind of planning your career as you go along. And I, I think when I was at Bearing Point, I had a great boss who said, well, at your stage in your career, you need to think about what you're going to do next. And, you know, by the way, I'm going to sponsor you to become a, an MD. And this was a global managing director role, which was uh, quite competitive, especially for somebody in the legal department to be uh, elected for that. It was going to be quite challenging, but he encouraged me to do it. And I also went for it, that experience also really added another thing that I could mention in my CV that led me to go to the next level. I mean, every time I was moving on to do a different role, it just got better and better. You kind of need to build that, I think, uh, one after another. And for that reason, know your goal and plan it mm. is, is perhaps something I would really advise um, people who want to become GCs uh, or team leaders. Mm, great advice. Absolutely. And so as well as doing your GC work and head of law that you are doing as well, you're also involved in various outside activities. And I know that you're severely committed to the Japan in-house council network. Uh, and co-running that. Tell us a bit more about that organization. There may be some people listening who don't know about it, uh, and you're very active in that group. Sure. So, Catherine, you were also involved in JICN in the past, and uh, we've had you know a lot of people supporting this organization. So currently, Will Herbert and myself lead the team together. We're now in the process of uh, rebuilding the website. We need to update our technology as well and make it easier for people to to apply for events but essentially this organization is there to enable people to do networking to learn about the legal industry to meet other people to maybe get updated on the latest development in in laws and and it's really meant to be for the community the other thing that i do is japan association for clos this is also at another organization that is a little bit similar in purpose to JICN, but a bit more about developing future leaders, future CLOs, and providing opportunities, again, for networking, learning. And those two associations that I'm involved in are very fulfilling for me. I feel the older I get, I feel it's now time to give back to the community. And uh, this is sometimes hard when I have a lot going on my plate. I have um, uh, a pretty busy career. Uh, I have a family, etc. But I always try and create some time in my calendar to to contribute in one way or another. Now, I haven't always been that way, I have to say. And it's really just run, run, run. It, it's been that way in the past. But the older I get, I just realize the, the significance of this and, and how important it is to really nurture the younger generation and really enable 
more people to well give help to the people who need it and to to provide these opportunities to those who need it. I'm I'm quite passionate about them, I I would say. Mm. And would you recommend other lawyers do that? Even though, as you just mentioned, you might be time insufficient, right? There may be times where you could be doing many other things, but you're still giving your time. Would you recommend to other lawyers to at least give some of their time to give back, as you've been saying? I would definitely say so. And particularly for women lawyers, I think the importance of creating your own network is so important. Um, you, Catherine, you're involved in Women in Law Japan. I think that's a great association and we do uh, joint events together. It really doesn't matter whether you're junior or senior, just going out there, getting to know other lawyers you can look up to or get yourself known by other lawyers and, and building relationships. I mean, men already do this without being told. But I think uh, for female in particular, it's important to have this kind of network and to also contribute in, in the way that you can. Great. And so you mentioned young lawyers there and women lawyers. Anything else that you would say for them as your advice? And perhaps it could be some of the best advice you've received, or maybe it's even the worst advice, but uh, some advice for perhaps young lawyers first up and then women lawyers in particular. Well, for young lawyers, I would say really try and find what makes you tick what do you want to do in your career of law? Do you want to be a subject matter expert? Do you want to be a team leader? Do you want to be a, a GC, private practice, in-house? I went through a couple of jobs to realize what I wanted. But the younger you are, you have many opportunities to go through trial and error. So I would say, you know, just just go for it. I think many other female guests on your podcast, Catherine, they have said things like, well, when there's an opportunity, just go for it. And I would say the same, particularly the younger you are, you have um, really nothing to lose. Your career is very long and you have many opportunities to to find out what works best for you. So I would I would say just go for it. Great. And anything particular for women lawyers there? So I think going back to what I mentioned earlier about networking. I think having your network would always support you. Um, men already do this a lot, but making sure even internally, it, it's not always just about external network, but internally you have people you can reach out to, somebody you can call a sponsor. I, I certainly had this in my previous jobs and I was always very much helped by having sponsors who supported me just spending time building relationships and seeking those sponsors or champions who can really help you with your career is something really worthwhile spending your time on. Brilliant. Wonderful. Is there anything today, Akiko, that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention or anything that we have talked about that you just wanted to reemphasize again? Well, I would just say, Catherine, first of all, thank you again for this opportunity. But yesterday, in order to prepare just a little bit for this <laughs> podcast, I had the pleasure of of listening to some of the other female members that you recently interviewed, and I just thought that they were absolutely great. And I couldn't believe that I had been missing out on all these podcasts. So I wanted to commend you, Catherine, on Thanks. your efforts of putting this together and inviting both senior and, and junior members to come forward with their thoughts. I think all of those podcasts are really very helpful. So yeah, I just really wanted to mention that to you, Catherine. Thank you very much. That's great. Yes. And certainly I think this season six has had uh, a number of really fabulous women who have really given all their insights uh, and really very, very enjoyable. Every every episode and obviously every season has been that. But I think in particular this particular season and your part of it has been a little bit different. Uh, and I really appreciate that you pulled that out and that you think you've been missing out and now you're going to continue listening to keep catching up. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's finish up today then with some more lighthearted questions. Mm-hmm. Since you, mm, let me see, since you are Japanese, obviously, I'd love to know what your favorite Japanese food is and where I can get it. And perhaps it's in Yokohama. And maybe it was the place yeah. we went to before, but is there anywhere else that I can get the kind of Japanese food that you like to eat? So I live in Kamakura now, and I can think of so many 
restaurants in Kamakura, but when I come to think of it, they're Italian or French or or there's something else. <laughs> so when I think of Japanese food, I, I do love sushi and so does my son. And uh, I can think of this one place. I don't know if you've been. It's actually in Tokyo, but it's called Shimon. No, I don't know it. it and they basically have a very long counter and uh, maybe they have table seats as well, but it's basically a counter and uh, everybody who serves there has a very similar style. They all look like they're Zen Buddhists or something, and they are very clean and minimalist, but the sushi that they serve there is is really fantastic. No soy sauce to be used because they already put every everything directly on each of the uh, the sushi that they're putting together. But when I first went there, I thought, Oh wow! You know, uh, this is the kind of sushi that I want to to always eat. And foreigners obviously love that place too, because these days when I do go, I see quite a few foreigners who who are there. So if you haven't been, we we need to try. Mm, sounds great, awesome. So what about a place that you love in Japan? I know you're living in Kamakura, but is there somewhere else that you would recommend that others should go to, or perhaps somewhere you went that you want to go again? If I were allowed to talk about my neighborhood, I would sure. I would say, you know, our, our house is um, maybe 10 minutes walk away from the ocean. Moving out here, building a house a couple of years ago has been just a wonderful experience. But just having the ocean right there is just absolutely fantastic. And my husband, being uh, an ex-surfer and lifeguard, being able to see the ocean uh, every day is is something really special for him. So I just really love walking alongside the ocean. And there are quite a few nice, fancy restaurants alongside the coast as well. So, so that's a nice place to go. If it were outside of Kamakura, I would say I really love Hakone. Mm, yes. I'm a big fan of hot springs. So uh, when we go to a ryokan in Hakone and it has a hot bath I would be in the bath at least five times a day and if it has lots <laughs> of different types of hot baths I would be in make sure to be in every single All one of them, of them at least <laughs> once each day so I'm a maximizer in that way yes but I do love Hakone a lot yeah. fantastic wow I love that and do you have a favorite saying in either English or Japanese that you might like to share Maybe it could be a mantra that you live by. You know, I was just thinking about one of the Zen words, uh, Zengo, which is uh, Mizu Teki Teki. Mm. And uh, this is you have a drop of water turns into a river. The river turns into an ocean. Um, something that is seemingly very small can really have turn into something very big and have a lot of power. And this sometimes makes me think about the team, um, how individually we're very different and we might not be as strong but you know when the team is all together we really we can be an enormous power so it makes me think of that and also the other saying that I like in English is um, uh, where there's rain look for a rainbow what is it where there's darkness in the sky look for stars I do try to think of things in a more positive light these days maybe in the past I my glass was more it was half empty, but now I'm trying to take more of a positive attitude to life in general. And I do like this, this saying about uh, rainbow and stars. Oh, that's very lovely. And last question then is something about you, Akiko, that others may not know. Let's surprise them. There are quite a few things because I'm, <laughs> I'm actually not a very public person. But, but one thing that people definitely won't know is that I took a course on transcendental meditation some Ooh. years ago yes I don't know that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's TM my parents have been practicing it for some time and it has really done them a lot of good and uh, so my husband and I we went on this course together I think to be honest my husband practices it more than I do and he's very successful I'm still learning ways to incorporate this in my in my life not in a serious way, but in a way that suits me. But it's it's really natural mental technique and you practice it with your eyes closed. You have a mantra and you use it to effortlessly transcend and go beyond the surface level of your awareness. So that's something that I try to do uh, whenever I, I have time. 
Wow, amazing. Mm, maybe you can run a <laughs> class for us and get us all going. Ooh, I'm not sure. I see. I don't do this seriously enough, right? I do it in a way that that kind of suits me. So, <laughs> not sure if I can really run a class as such, but uh, but definitely recommend it. If, uh, for, particularly for busy lawyers, it's it's exactly. a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Akiko. We've had a lovely chat today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and you know putting yourself out there. You're not a public person, as you said. And it's been just wonderful to connect in this personal way with you. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, even if you're not so public, could they do that perhaps through LinkedIn? Sure. I do have a LinkedIn account and I'm I'm connected with quite a few people. I do like these sort of individual one-on-ones more than than sort of blast messages and things. So I'm not so active on the account, but I certainly will respond to anyone who reaches out to me. So very happy to for you to provide the LinkedIn. Exactly. If someone just throws a connect message, it never really appeals as much as I heard you on the podcast and I wanted to ask you some more about TM or about Mizu Teki Teki, how do you bring together <laughs> that team, right? And make a whole lot of together. Great. Well, we'll put your link uh, in, from LinkedIn into the show notes. And then anyone who wants to can get hold of you. And also anyone who's listening today, if you've been listening to the podcast and really enjoyed it, we would love to have your review. Pop on over to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify, whichever platform you use, and leave us a message, leave us a review, and we'd really love to hear that. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today, and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers, come pie, and bye for now. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Lawyer on Air. I really hope that you were inspired by the story you heard and that you discovered something new about women in the law. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you can think of even just one person to share this episode with, that would make my day. I invite you to connect with me to talk more. Jump on over to LinkedIn or Instagram where you can find me or send me a message via my website contact page. That's all from me today. I look forward to seeing you right here on the next episode of Lawyer On Air. Cheers, come pie and bye for now.